Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is On Just Being with Scott Russell Sanders. Our opening song is Just Being by the Yaron Herman Trio. Yaron Herman is a French-Israeli jazz pianist living in Paris. All of our music from the show comes from the 2019 release, Songs of the Degrees. Last week, I spent a few days with Bloomington, Indiana's Scott Russell Sanders, a well-known writer of novels, short stories, children's books, and essays. His work is generally described as nature writing, though, as we'll hear, Sanders does not accept this, insisting he's an earth writer. I didn't actually spend time with Sanders, though he and I do live about a block apart and I wave as I walk our dogs by his house. With new COVID cases steadily reaching about 30 per day for the last month, we connected for our discussion via Zoom, a kind of techno version of twine and two soup cans. But I did spend time attending to his thinking and his voice. I read his new book of essays, The Way of Imagination, out earlier this year from Counterpoint Press. Sanders, at least in this book, offers enough of himself, of his life, from youth to the present, including intimate details about his family's well-being, to make even essays that are primarily didactic feel deeply personal. So what are these essays about? Sanders treats three primary themes. First, the role of imagination in art, science, social reform, and compassion. The second is neighborliness, kinship, and community. And finally, the personal and the public. As I made my way through each successive essay, it surprised me that I'd never spoken with Scott Sanders on Interchange before. So many of his subjects and even references are shared in past programs. There's an essay on Thoreau, there's an essay that discusses the thinking of John Woolman, an 18th century Quaker born in New Jersey who was anti-slavery, anti-war, and vegetarian. And this is ground tread in our program on Benjamin Lay, another Quaker with the same fiery stance against the status quo of the times and the so-called New World. There's a strong pacifist tone throughout, noted particularly in the essay on the Trappist monk Thomas Merton, who lived most of his writing life in Kentucky. We can pair this with our program on anti-war and labor activist, the clergyman, A.J. Musty, and I could go on. But I don't think Sanders ever mentions Melville. Nobody's perfect. The centerpiece in today's program is our talk about the essay, The Suffering of Strangers, which details a visit Sanders took to Charleston, South Carolina, touring two former slave plantations, one still in the hands of the family that enslaved black men and women, and one run by a nonprofit trust supported by donations. The differences of presentation are striking and instructive of so much that troubles this country. It's a seven-page essay that I think admits more than its author might want to about necessary trouble. To quote the late John Lewis, that essay opens with an epigram from Thomas Paine that we might all commit to memory. It is the good fortune of many to live distant from the scene of sorrow. That distance is killing us. And now, on Just Being, with Scott Russell Sanders, on Interchange, on WFHB. Well, let me ask you a little bit about, um, I guess, the craft of crafting a book of essays, because I found myself writing notes 
you know, in, in the margins and asking questions as I went along, uh, pointing out, you know, where I might have uh, disagreed or where I thought uh, an author you quoted said something different at a different time. And then lo and behold, 10 to 15 pages later, you would actually answer my question or <laughs> use the quote that I was thinking of from the author throughout. So it struck me that either this is some weird, you know, um, magic you purvey, uh, or there's, there's a pretty strong um, craft to, you know, bringing these essays together, that they do speak to each other and, and uh, build upon each other. It is a collection of essays. These essays were written over about a five-year period. On the other hand, they're driven by a core set of questions and concerns. So while each essay may seem to take off in a different direction, one might be about my own family life, another might be about a journey I took, another might be about a figure like Thomas Merton or Henry David Thoreau, even though they may seem to be taking off in different directions, they're actually being driven by the same relatively small number of questions and concerns. And so there's a greater coherence in the book than a reader might expect, thinking, oh, these are just miscellaneous essays. They're not miscellaneous. They're different approaches to the same core set of concerns. It's impressive when you, when something actually seems easy, Scott, which I think your book feels easy, but has such a depth to it and such a, an attention to it that, you know, you're sort of being I won't use the word manipulated, but somebody who knows how to use words uh, and knows how to think along, you know, a scaffolding aspect or, you know, a way in which you just keep repeating or in different ways, the same kinds of ideas, they really do build in such a way and, and sort of uh, uh, just create a way in which, you know, the, the reader expands into them with the book itself. So it's a tricky sort of thing to accomplish, I imagine. But I think in this book, uh, you, you really achieved it well. Well, again, I'm, I'm glad you feel that. Well, let, let me take an, a concrete example from the middle of the book that I hope illustrates what you're saying. There's an essay called Kinship and Kindness. There's one called The Suffering of Strangers. There's one called Neighbors. And those are three different essays. They're all clustered together. And all of them really are about the same phenomenon. Or maybe I should put it better. They're all responses to the same observation. The observation is that, that there are many forces in our society that drive people apart, that set them at, at, at odds with one another. I think a lot of the media do that. Certainly a lot of politicians do that. Certain church leaders do that. That is divide us, emphasize uh, antagonisms, divisions between us and them. And so one of my core concerns throughout this book is to articulate the grounds for our common humanity, our kinship. And the word kinship is related to kindness. Literally, we treat kindly those with whom we feel we are kin. And a great deal of what's troubling about contemporary American society is the divisiveness, which serves political ends, power ends, certain religious ends. But that, device, that dividedness is psychologically and spiritually unhealthy for us. So there are three different essays, all of which are actually speaking about the need for a recognition of our common humanity. And one of them comes from, begins with a walk across the Indiana University campus. And another one begins with um, a childhood memory of my family helping out a neighbor family and what it means to be neighbors. And, and a third one 
starts out from an account of visiting two different restored plantations in South Carolina and what they tell us about who gets to write history and two very different views of Black history on those two plantations. So there are three approaches, some more personal than the others, some going back to childhood, some going back to recent memories of a journey, but they're all really dealing with, wrestling with the same core concern, which is how to articulate and uphold and celebrate our common humanity. Hello, this is Alex Lichtenstein, professor of history at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. I know, I know. You listen to Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! You probably even dig fresh air. But did you know that right here in Bloomington, we have our very own progressive version of community-supported talk radio? Tune in to Interchange with Doug Storm. Doug's guests from all over the world tell it like it is. Only on WFHB. Listen, supporting a local resource that deepens our critical understanding of our world with a sustaining donation is an essential act in these times. Please give to support Interchange and WFHB. Thank you. This is Interchange on WFHB. It's our fall fund drive, and that means we're asking you for money. We don't exist without you. Go to WFHB.org, click on the big red donate button on the right-hand side of the page, and commit to this community partnership. Listen, support, empower. WFHB. Now back to the show on Just Being with essayist Scott Russell Sanders. I really found the core of the book to include, obviously, those those essays, but also, I, I think for me, starting with conscience and resistance and probably ending with the uh, at the gates of deep darkness in, in the sense of it being uh, just the, the deepest uh, plumbing of the, these particular issues at the core of the book. And it does kind of serve as the core of the book. Interestingly, 76 pages of um, really, really impressive uh, work that, that did come at things in a personal way. Uh, as well as, you know, trying to think through the works of other people. Uh, Conscience and Resistance is the, the essay that focuses on the work of Thomas Merton and uses uh, Ionesco as well. So uh, those, those, are, those were actually the, the ones I would have pulled out and said, you know, these are the ones that moved me the most and I thought had the most power. Well, the, 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 bra- the bracketing essays there, the one called Conscience and Resistance, which, as you say, arises from the impact of Thomas Merton on me was about the decision I made as a college student during my college years, rather, to become a conscientious objector against the war in Vietnam. And that wasn't a practical decision. That was a a moral decision. And it wasn't easy to arrive at, given my family background and Southern uh, inheritance. And the last of those, that core set of essays that you referred to in the book, the one called At the Gates of Deep Darkness begins in my present life, which is the impact on me emotionally and spiritually of having my son, our son, suffering stage four cancer. And it led me or forced me to reflect more deeply on my understanding of nature. I'm sometimes called a nature writer. It's, it's not a term that I accept uncritically. I think of myself as an earth writer and earth includes everything on earth, including us humans. Um, But in celebrating nature, I have to admit that nature ultimately will reclaim us. And so that essay at the gates of deep darkness 
is in some ways a parallel to the one about my becoming a conscientious objector as a young man. And now as an old man, I guess chronologically, although emotionally I don't feel old, but certainly chronologically I am. I'm, I turned 75 this coming week. And in most people's eyes, that's an elderly person. Well, as an elderly person, I'm still contending with fundamental questions about the meaning of life, about how to face mortality, about how to deal with losing people and things that one loves. Uh, so there is a, there is a continuity. It's more than just the same person has the person has the same name through all those years. There's really a continuity of issues of conscience that I have wrestled with all these years. And I trust that any reader of this book has his or her own cases of conscience over the course of their lives, where they have to think more deeply about their values, more deeply about the meaning of their life, and perhaps ultimately the meaning of all life. And uh, so my hope always is that a reader will think and feel more deeply about his or her own life as a result of having read what I've written about, not so much about my life. I do write some about my life. I'm trying much more to write about our our shared life, the, the fates and the predicaments that we all share by virtue of being human beings. My name is Tristan Tanzengaitis, and I've been an interchange listener since 2015. Political discourse has changed since then, as has the state of the fourth estate. One thing that hasn't changed is that interchange digs not only deeper but broader, and I can count on interchange to deliver perspectives I haven't previously heard from voices that will leave my mind more open than it was before. So please join me in giving to WFHB so we can keep our airwaves full of essential programming. This is Interchange on WFHB. It's our fall fun drive, and that means we're asking you for money. We don't exist without you. Go to WFHB.org, click on the big red donate button on the right-hand side of the page, and commit to this community partnership. Listen, support, empower. WFHB. Now back to the show on Just Being with essayist Scott Russell Sanders. I think one of the things that for me is important is how we do come to that way to to sort of deepen our thinking or how you know how we have to sort of disrupt the daily unthinkingness that is prompted by the culture we live in by again the economic system we have the government's you know the government we have perhaps uh, how we have to disrupt those things and I've always imagined that you know most people need trauma in some ways to to shift their perspective a little bit. Um, even a man like you, I assume, who has been a fairly active thinker all his life, needed to be shifted in some ways, you know, to, to move off particular perspectives, to to push yourself into different ideas, even even as an active reader. Um, and here we here we today can hardly imagine active readers. Uh, your book again is is fairly consistent about the difficulties of sort of thinking in general in these times. So um, how do you imagine even, you know, reaching people who would, who were not going to read, <laughs> I'm sad to say, who are probably not going to read Scott Sanders essays. Many people live long, rich, meaningful lives without ever hurting, <laughs> having heard of me. So <laughs> I, I, I know that that's, uh, that's certainly the case. I just want to pick up a couple of points there, Doug. You're absolutely right that in, my experience, and I suspect this is true of most people, 
one one may settle into a set of views, a set of opinions to think that one has needn't think further about a given question. And then life will throw up some challenge that forces one to return to those questions. Like the our, our, I was brought up to believe, for example, as many people in America have been brought up to believe that the universe was was created by a deity that is on the whole benign and loving and cares for us. But any casual observation of the nature of the universe, including human suffering, would raise the question, why do we assume that if there was or is a creator, that the creator has any interest in us or has any is kindly disposed? Uh, that's simply something that we would like to believe, but there's no necessary reason to believe that. And losing loved ones, losing friends, uh, suffering one's own illnesses and losses uh, forces on one the, the, the need to rethink fundamental questions like, why do we assume that a creator is benevolent? It doesn't have to be the opposite, malevolent, but simply indifferent. Why do we assume a creator cares? Uh, it, it is the case that the mind is tries to, through efficiency, the most efficient thing is not to have to rethink anything that you take for granted uh, and then just change the channel, <laughs> see what's on the next channel, watch the net, next Netflix. It, it requires an effort to reconsider, let alone to revise one's views on things. And one reason we might undertake that effort is because life confronts us with a challenge, personal challenge, or in the case right now, of course, the pandemic. I trust and I have a sense from reading and from receiving messages from people far afield. I sense that many people are rethinking what deeply matters as a result of the pandemic. Obviously, life and health matter, but also community matters. As we have to distance ourselves, socially distance ourselves from other people, including members of our own family. We can't hug our own grandchildren who live down the block from us. Uh, it forces many people or invites many people to think, really, what matters most? Is it who's in power? Is it how much money we have amassed? Is it how big and powerful our truck or car or house is? Obviously, the answer to all those questions is no. Those are not the most important things in our lives. But it's easy to, to settle into the view that advertising fosters. If you want happiness, if you want comfort, if you want convenience, if you want the good life, buy this or subscribe to that. We are bombarded 24 hours a day by every medium known to humankind with advertisements trying to sell us well-being when the real sources of well-being, for the most part, are not for sale. Breathable air, drinkable water, a safe community, a habitable earth, an honest judicial system, a fair economic system. All of those things are fundamental to our well-being. This is Rasul Mowat, professor at Indiana University in the Department of American Studies and the Department of Geography, where I look at the histories of violence, specifically racial violence, as well as an upcoming project around the geographies of threat, cities of violence. WFHB and specifically shows like Interchange have been most helpful in informing my thinking, my opinions, and my insight around areas of the commons, riots, and violence overall. So please take the time and donate to WFHB. Thank you. It's time for a break. This is Kinship. 
Another from the Yaron Herman Trio. It's our fall fund drive at WFHB, the time when we ask you for financial support. Nearly 70% of our operating budget comes from you. Here's Interchange episode producer Cole Nelson on why Interchange and WFHB are essential to our well-being as thinking, caring humans. As an interview show, Interchange seeks out authors who challenge prevailing opinions. In this way, it's a space of dissent, and dissent is currently under attack. When we see the enforced disintegration of communities and collectivities by governments aligned with corporations and served by police powers, our ethical response is opposition. For instance, the show on violence work with Nicole Siegel reveals the quotidian violence the United States police force engages in on a constant basis. And the interview with UCSC Wildcat Strikers highlights the constant struggles around housing that consumes the lives of students and community members alike. These are common acts of resistance that Interchange takes pride in sharing. This is an ethical resistance. This is Interchange. Each program offers a dynamic arrangement of voices and thinkers from around the world and from all manners of disciplines, providing for creative resonance and conjuncture where different and sophisticated ideas are broadcast into being simply by sparking the curiosity of speaker and listener alike. Bertolt Brecht's imperative that the radio's prime objective should not be to turn its audience into a sea of pupils, but to make teachers of its audience, is the guiding principle of interchange. This is a large task and great responsibility that requires institutional support. WFHB is that support. Without you, there's no WFHB, and there's no interchange. Make your pledge today, right now. The easiest way to do this is to go online to WFHB.org and click on the large red Donate button on the right side of the page. Offer monthly support of $10 or $20 through a bank transfer or credit card to provide WFHB with consistent operating funds. You can also call us at 812-323-1200. Again, please pledge your support to Interchange today. Say yes to a show that opens up room for a dissenting voice. Thank you. Now back to our interview with Scott Russell Sanders on Just Being on Interchange on WFHB. In, you know, you start your book with uh, In Living Midnight, um, where I think you set out to offer examples of progress, I, I guess I would say, or ways in which we might uh, think about the betterment of our uh, world, our human world, as well, as well as how we deal with the world around us, not just the human world. But one thing in particular you do is you, you point to the kind of entwinement of abolitionism in the 19th century with uh, feminist calls to equality at the same time. And you detail uh, some of the Seneca Falls Convention's Declaration of Sentiments, which lists grievances against men, uh, one of which is a woman's obedience to the husband. And then you write the phrase that, uh, you know, kind of stopped me on my tracks only because of the world we're confronting right now. You write that no person of influence in America today would deny that women deserve the same rights and opportunities as men. And then I thought, well, they might not deny it, but, <laughs> but, but here we have a Supreme Court of the United States nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, who seems likely to deny that particular point. I certainly am optimistic in that statement, and the, the contemporary news gives me pause about it as well. I say similar things about uh, slavery being completely un unacceptable in the American context. Uh, I, I also acknowledge and 
the essay about racism and slavery that there's plenty of slavery in elsewhere in the world today. Uh, so it's not as though s- slavery is extinct because the abolitionists fought against it and the Civil War was fought over it. Uh, and it's certainly the case that that sexism, the patriarchal assumptions about the role of women uh, have not disappeared. But I think my, and, and, and perhaps in making my claim, I was trying to invite the, the reader to think about a world before abolition, before women were granted any rights. Women fought for the simple right to vote, to be, to, to be treated as human beings capable of making judgments about who should, who should rule over them. Uh, they were denied that, well, they were denied that until the early 20th century from the time of the founding of the country. But they, they began making the effort to gain the vote some 60 years before they got it. And to realize that what we take for granted or things we take for granted, that nobody could be enslaved in America today, even though racism persists. And no woman could be denied the right to vote simply because she's a woman. Although we both know that many people are being disenfranchised now for all sorts of reasons. But still, I want readers to realize that we are capable of change. So I open the book with the examples of the fight against slavery, which also went on for some 80 years before the first abolitionists began making their arguments to the time of the Civil War. And I'm well aware, of course, that Civil War did not end racism. It was followed by a brief spell of Reconstruction, and then Jim Crow and lynchings and and, and various forms and expressions of racism, many of them deadly right into our own day. But had people not imagined a world without slavery, had people not imagined a world in which women could own property, could vote, could run businesses, could pursue any profession, could become doctors, could be lawyers, could be ministers, had people not imagined those possibilities and then worked towards them, we would still have slavery. We would still have women in every way subordinate to men, lacking all legal rights. Uh, in, In the 19th century, women had no legal right to their own children. Women, for the longest time, could not bear witness in court. They were not regarded as worthy of belief or trust in giving testimony in court. We're, we're in a moment, a, a profoundly retrograde moment in American history, when many of the advances towards fairness and equity and justice between the sexes, across races, across all our supposed divisions, when many of those advances have been at least temporarily undone, and it's tragic. But there's also been a profound revulsion against that retrograde movement. Right now, leading up to the election, we'll have to see whether that revulsion is enough to make a change of course. But I do believe in the human capacity for learning, for changing as individuals, as communities, and ultimately as nations and as a species. Greetings, WFHB listeners. My name is Doug Harvey. I'm a historian and history prof in the Kansas City area. And I just wanted to take a minute to say thank you to Doug Storm and Interchange and WFHB. My job is to provide access to an intelligent, informed discourse that includes a basic knowledge of history. And Interchange is the most significant podcast I know of in terms of providing that. I utilize Interchange in my teaching. It provides my students with excellent examples of what intelligent, informed discourse sounds like. 
So please join me in supporting this program with whatever you can afford. Our country needs all the help it can get right now, and Interchange represents both time and money well spent. This is Interchange on WFHB. It's our fall fun drive, and that means we're asking you for money. We don't exist without you. Listen, support, empower. WFHB. Now back to the show on Just Being with essayist Scott Russell Sanders. Well, I think that you do a great job of setting out um, those examples. And I do want to go back to the chapter on the tourist trip you went to the south, to the plantations. Uh, That also was uh, really an enlightening, interesting way to sort of talk about public and private uh, perceptions or, uh, or representations of a particular thing. So I do want to return there as well. But I do want to first talk about opening the book with the Quaker John Woolman. And he's kind of the ethical heart of the book in a lot of ways. And what you just said about people being able to change, um, you know, is is always a contestable proposition as we, you know, confront the other side of that of that sentiment, right, is that nobody ever changes. Woolman, you cite, you know, wrote against slavery in particular and um, saying basically what we've done is create the slave. And as, as we've had a recent show on Malcolm X, who's, you know, was speaking about the nation uh, from the nation of Islam at the time, but saying even the word Negro isn't a isn't an anthropological term. It's a term made up by the slave master. Right. So it's we create this the material existence that we inhabit. Right. And Woolman himself, 1763, saying something to the effect, you put somebody in rags, you keep them poor, you keep them underfed, you keep them uneducated, like that's their natural state. Right. So you've made a creature be a certain way and then condemn them as inferior beings to your superiority. Well, the reason race as a concept was invented and historians have written about this invented late in the 17th century. So a century before Woolman. Racism was invented as a justification for slavery. It was a rationalization because here you have one set of human beings treating other, another set of human beings who are distinguished by skin color and origins. Like they're brought from Africa, treating them like, like worse than their livestock and brutalizing them, exploiting them, claiming their children, impregnating their women, many of the lords of the manor doing so. And so to maintain the fiction that these these white people, these slave owners, to maintain their fiction that they're good, upstanding Christians, they have to dehumanize the humans whom they are abusing in this way. Because if they accept the full humanity of these dark-skinned people who've been forced, who've been brought in chains from Africa, if they have to accept that they are human beings, beloved of God, created in the image of God, that's language that would have been meaningful to those white plantation owners. If they have to acknowledge the humanity of the slaves, then they couldn't live with themselves. So the only way they can sustain the illusion that they are good, upstanding, God-fearing people is to treat the slaves as subhuman or non-human, analogous to their draft horses or their mules. And we are still suffering to this day in this country uh, and the part of many Americans, we are still suffering from that fundamental self-flattering fiction 
that these people who are impoverished in cities or who are dying in disproportionate numbers from the pandemic, we are still suffering from the view that somehow people, light-skinned people are superior to these dark-skinned people who are suffering in these ways. It's a lie that people tell themselves to make, make themselves feel that they have no responsibility that, that, that these are not their brothers and sisters. Well, we are all one another's brothers and sisters, regardless of our economic class, regardless of our gender, regardless of our skin color or ethnic backgrounds. We are all brothers and sisters. That's the simple truth of it. And unless we live in light of that fact, our kinship with one another, we will continue to have racism. We'll continue to have subordination of women in many ways, in many instances. We'll continue to have wars. So these are not these are not obscure ideas or thoughts. They're not original with me. They're as old as human wisdom. And I simply have seen the truth of them in my life experience and have tried to write out of that awareness in these books. There's a an epigraph, as you may recall, Doug, there's an epigraph to the essay about the visits to the two plantations. It's from Thomas Paine, famous for common sense and the rights of man, great revolutionary. Thomas Paine wrote, it is the good fortune of many to live distant from the scene of sorrow. And I put it there because I think about those plantation owners who are sitting up there in the big house, waited on hand and foot, having their balls eating their sumptuous meals, handing over their babies to the black nursemaids. They're living distant from the scene of sorrow. The sorrow is down in the slave cabins. It is out in the fields. It's in the, it's in the malaria-infested swamps. And today, those who are in positions of greatest power in corporations, in government, in the mass media, most of them live very far from the scenes of sorrow. Hi, this is Sarah Ehlers, author of Left of Poetry, Depression America, and the Formation of Modern Poetics. Interchange on WFHB is an important local resource for conversations about what matters most. Supporting programming like Interchange that deepens our critical understanding of the world with a sustaining donation is an essential act in these unprecedented times. This is Interchange on WFHB. It's our fall fun drive, and that means we're asking you for money. We don't exist without you. Listen, support, empower. WFHB. Now back to the show on Just Being with essayist Scott Russell Sanders. I do want you to tell a little bit about that that trip. I quietly smiled to myself as, as you're not just showing um, like a Southern plantation perspective versus the African-American perspective, right? You're also talking about a private perspective that has particular interests and a public one that has a greater, broader interest. And that really, you know, literally in a page and a half, you made like an argument for, you know, anything public in some sense, the things that we keep trying to sell ourselves away from right, that the culture itself and the economics itself wants to sell away from you these public opportunities, public libraries, public school, uh, museums, whatever. These public things are important because they they protect the true stories, right? They protect facts that the private interests will hide from you. Uh, so if you don't mind, tell a little bit about that trip. Well, the short version of it is that 
my wife and I, with friends, were visiting. I was giving a talk in Charleston, South Carolina, and my wife traveled with me, and we met friends there. And we went to two plantations that had been restored, immediately adjacent to one another, right next door, along a river that flows into Charleston, South Carolina. And the first plantation, by coincidence, that we visited was one that was still owned by descendants of the original landowners, same family. And the second one was owned by a nonprofit that protects places of historic significance. So it's a, the second place was publicly owned in that sense because it's a nonprofit that's supported by donations. So the, in the first place, the whole emphasis was on the life of the big house, the glamour of the plantation house, the balls that they held there, the big parties, the beautiful women in their ball gowns and so forth. All of the interpreters were white. The slave cabins were referred, their slave huts were referred to as something like, uh, it's in the essay, something like worker, worker cabins. Uh, They couldn't even use the word slaves. And while they couldn't hide the fact that it was a plantation and had slaves on it, they didn't make anything of it. You could pay an extra fee and actually go to the area where the black people lived and worked. But otherwise, you just spend all your time with your basic entrance fee in and around the plantation house. So that's the view of that Southern history from the point of view of those who exploited and benefited from the unpaid labor and misery and early deaths of hundreds and thousands of African descendants. When we went next door to this one, to the, to the plantation that had, had once been owned by members of the same family as the first plantation, because it was in a public trust and because of the judgment of the people who were managing the plantation, the interpreters, with one exception, were black. There was one white, white interpreter. You did see the, something of the plantation house and hear a little bit about it, but about 90% of what you heard about and saw and visited was the conditions of life for the imprisoned, enslaved African people who worked those plantations. And you learned, for example, that those Africans brought with them many kinds of knowledge without which the plantation economy would have been impossible. For example, rice growing. Nobody knew how to grow rice in Europe. Nobody in the colonies knew how to grow rice until people from Africa were brought over as slaves. And there were rice paddies on that plantation because Africans not only did the work, they provided the knowledge involved in how to grow rice. So in the second case, you were told about the overwhelming population of the plantation, which was never white people. It was always black people. It might have been 10 to 1 or 20 to 1 in proportion. You learned what the circumstance, their living conditions were like. You learned what days in the field were like, what diseases, illnesses they suffered from what kinds of knowledge they possessed that they that was knowledge that helped create the great wealth of those plantations so i was was fascinated by this contrast about how to see the history of the south how to see the history of the of the slave economy and the plantation culture it's not that racism only occurred in the south or that it only endures there it certainly endures in indiana This is Bruce Franklin. Interchange is one of the finest radio shows I have ever been on. Doug Storm does an amazing job 
are making each show a treasure chest filled with invaluable knowledge and insights. In these perilous times, Interchange keeps giving us a precious guiding light. Support it. It's time for a break. This is Song of the Degrees, another one from the Yaron Herman Trio. Here's Interchange episode producer Brady Heberlin on why Interchange and WFHB are essential to our well-being as thinking, caring humans. As the COVID-19 pandemic gripped our lives and economy, an uprising against police violence resonated across the nation. Meanwhile, the destruction of our biosphere continued like business as usual. Faced with a pandemic, a wave of unrest, and climate destruction, we all know we're living in uncertain times. But Interchange producers like myself are committed to breaking stories that lend clarity and offer possibilities for a better world. With Interchange, you know you're getting the latest conversations about topics that matter straight from your neighbors in Bloomington, Indiana. When the pandemic began, we spoke with an epidemiologist and complex system scientist named Samuel Scarpino. When we interviewed him in April of this year, Scarpino explained how the r naught value can help us understand and predict the way the novel coronavirus spreads. You heard it first on Interchange. During and after the uprising that followed the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, we brought you stories of the black radical tradition and the history of policing, with interviews from Assad Haider, Yannick Marshall, and Michael Sawyer. And for years, we've been covering the possibility of life worth living amidst ecological destruction. We produce our show every week because we know that together, we have the power to build a better world, one that's not built on systemic violence and ecocide. We want to bring you views that highlight those possibilities. As a volunteer-run radio show, we rely on your support. You can call in to make a pledge at 812-323-1200. You can also go online to wfhb.org to make a secure donation. There's a big red donate button on the right-hand side of the page. You can't miss it, I promise. Any amount is welcome, and every donation is greatly appreciated. Thanks for listening to Interchange on WFHB. Now back to On Just Being, our conversation with essayist Scott Russell Sanders on the way of imagination. I did find just the way in which you could sort of see public versus private ideas there and sort of take that into a, even a greater sphere as interesting. But also you do, um, you do the thing I think you do throughout the book, which is broaden that, right? And you take it out and you say, well, you know, global capitalism, even though I don't think you use the word global capitalism until page 188, I think I wrote it. <laughs> you stayed away from it for a long time, um, but you're arguing about it the whole time. Um, right. the, the thing that happens is that you say, this is the same economic structure that provides, that allows us to live in the master's house, right? So yes. you, the United States, having lots and lots of very, very difficult circumstances for, for many of its people, right? Still, still is the master's house. And the slave plantations exist in all of the places we, we now denigrate by the term third world, even though it was originally intended to be a, a third possibility, a third way. Uh, that would be better than the first and second ways. Um, but we still make use of so many peoples and their resources that it's literally the same kind of thing as a plantation economy. 
And it struck me that this is not unique to the U.S. Uh, in history, it's not unique. I think that it's even we're even able to show uh, the idea of you know states themselves spring up not just with grain. Speaking of rice, right? Not just with grain, but with that kind of construction of labor, where the enslaved people are pushed to the outskirts of of these cities, ancient Mesopotamian cities that you won't see, but they do all the work. And then there's a core city that you know luxuriates. Um, this is the beginning of history, uh, and and it and it continues. Uh, and obviously, it's on a scale writ writ immensely large at this point. But it is it is global capitalism, and it's not it's not unique to the U.S. and um, it's not a unique perspective. This kind of will to power over the rest of the world and the willed invisibility of right. the folks who are whose whose lives and sacrifices and often whose early deaths and whose poverty makes possible the luxuries of the master's house. And you're right. And I, I would just reinforce your, your comment. There's a lot of hardship in America. And it's ex- accentuated right now because of the pandemic and the economic dislocation that has occurred. But the majority, the vast majority of Americans live like kings and queens of old right. in terms of our lifestyles and our privileges. And you don't have to be what's called rich in America to be living a life of luxury compared to the lives of most people on earth. Uh, I think that uh, I, I've all, all the way through our very interesting conversation, Doug, I've wanted to say why I so value WFHB, and it's actually connected to the issue about global capitalism. So let me just say two words about, a few words about global capitalism versus local capitalism, Mm -hmm. and then about WFHB and its importance to our community. There's an illusion that the local car dealer who or insurance agent who is a capitalist in the sense that he or she has invested money in a business pursues that business and hopes to make a profit so they can pay their employees and keep the roof over the head and keep the business going. There's a difference between that local small-scale capitalism and global capitalism. And the difference is that the first set of people, the people who are all around towns like Bloomington, Indianapolis, any city or town you look to in the country, has local capitalists who have invested their money, risked their money, often gone into debt, to run a business and hope to make a profit. And I say more power to them. They create services, restaurants, stores, many things we value and need. But they're also citizens of those local communities. Many of them do volunteer work throughout the community. They serve on boards. They, they contribute to nonprofits. They contribute to their communities and to some extent they're answerable to their communities. My name is Michael Sawyer. I'm assistant professor of race, ethnicity, and migration studies in the Department of English at Colorado College. I'm just taking a moment to voice my support for WFHB and interchange the show that I was able to participate on to talk about my recently published book, The Black-Minded, The Political Philosophy of Malcolm X. As everyone knows, in this kind of difficult time, we have very few opportunities to gather together. So these platforms and shows like Interchange are so important for us to keep these conversations going, particularly as we grapple with these difficult problems. So do the most that you possibly can to support WFHB and Interchange. Thank you. This is Interchange on WFHB. It's our fall fund drive, and that means we're asking you for money. We don't exist without you. Listen, support, empower. WFHB. Now back to the show on Just Being, with essayist Scott Russell Sanders.
global capitalism is the Exxons and the Googles and the and the Apples and the other huge Sony on and on the huge corporations which are not located anywhere. They're not answerable to any people, let alone any community. They have the only goal they have is to stay in business and make as much money as possible. And so they have every incentive to evade taxation, evade regulation, to cast off their costs on the quality of water, for example, onto other people. So we should not say that to be against those big global corporations that can do so much damage. Again, I'll point to a company like Exxon that knew has known for 40 years about the effects of greenhouse gas emissions and have done everything they can to prevent any effort on a part of our government or our municipalities to address global heating. There's a difference between Exxon and the local car dealer. And we shouldn't say that to be against the kind of concentration of power that an Exxon or an Apple or a Google represents or uh, Facebook. To be against that is to be against capitalism. It's to be against the kind of rapacious, uncontrollable, unlocated exploitation of people and planet. The local matters that we have a pretty good, I would say, local newspaper is vital to the health of the community. That we have community access television. We have a public library. We have dozens and dozens and dozens of nonprofits as well as public social agencies to address the needs of this community, this county, and this region of Indiana. And among those vital resources is WFHB. Anyone who looks through the listing of regular programming produced by this remarkable radio station on on the arts, on public policy, on the environment, on black issues, on Hispanic issues. Anyone who looks through that list or listens broadly realizes that there's no other entity in our community that pays as broad attention or in-depth attention to life in this community, in our county, and in this part of Indiana. No institution does that better or more richly than WFHB. So I'm very pleased and grateful to be having this talk with you, but I'm also more pleased and grateful that your series of interchange is carried on this radio station and that so much, so much other good programming, including a lot of local news that we would get nowhere else, is available on this radio station. This is Dave Ranney. I'm the author of a recent book, Living and Dying on the Factory Floor. During my book event tour, I had the privilege of being interviewed on Interchange, the public affairs program produced by WFHB out of Bloomington, Indiana. That interview was one of the highlights of my tour, as I had the opportunity to talk about the issues raised in my book in depth with a skilled interviewer. This show makes a major contribution to our understanding of critical issues facing all of us in this time of crisis. WFHB and Interchange are listener-supported and powered by volunteers. Please consider making a sustaining donation to keep them on the air. This is Interchange on WFHB. It's our fall fun drive, and that means we're asking you for money. We don't exist without you. Listen, support, empower. WFHB. Now back to the show on Just Being with essayist Scott Russell Sanders. One of the things I liked uh, that you wrote in the book was as a boy reading the Bible, right? Uh, 
that you read it in order, right? You, you know, from from the beginning to the end. I, I assume you made you made it through. Um, but the thing that you wrote was that you 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 got to Job before you got to Jesus, obviously, right? Yes. And yes. it's such a great way to conceive of of how one might really think about the Bible differently is to think about coming to Job before you come to Jesus, confronting the the difficulties of that particular story, um, which in some sense we all face. I mean, Job is a terrible story that is universal, maybe not in its terribleness, but in in the questioning of, you know, why bad things happen to me. I read the Bible the first time. I've read it many times. And I then after a while, I became selective. There were certain, I didn't go back to the begats, you know, there were whole huge sections of the Bible I had read a couple or two or three times as a, as a boy and young man and then thought, okay, that's enough. I, I don't need to return to them. But, but there are other parts that I, I return to, to, to this day. And, uh, it, it, but in, that, in those early readings, I didn't know any scholarship. Obviously, 90% of what was going on in the, in the book didn't make sense to me, but I just kept plodding along in a dutiful, pious, uh, little uh, you know, religious boy way. And I didn't really have guidance from adults. Nobody, nobody forced me to read it. Nobody guided my reading. Uh, nobody asked me my impressions. And what I realized and what was reflected in that getting to Job before Jesus is that the, the fundamental underlying impulse that leads human beings to religion of any sort, not just Christianity, not just Judaism or Islam or Hinduism, but the, the, the driving influence, the driving factors are one, that we're mortal, that we're going to die. And that we, at a certain point as children, we learn that and we never can unlearn that. So the fear of death or the recognition of death or the anticipation of death is one of the drivers of all religion. The second one is that we are going to suffer. Uh, suffering is just inextricable from life. It may be deep, profound suffering, like Job suffered, or it may be minor, bruises and nicks, and some people go through life and seem to have a charmed life and then die peacefully in their beds. But most people have occasion for deep suffering in their lives. It's just intrinsic to being human. And that was the first teaching of the Buddha, is that we suffer. And then he went on from there. Okay, given that we suffer, what causes our suffering and how might we be released from suffering? So suffering is the first thing that you find in the Bible. You find this Hebrew people who are enslaved in Egypt. You find them uh, wandering in the desert. You find them famished, suffer, suffering from famine and drought. You find them caught up in warfares, sent into exile. So there's suffering upon suffering upon suffering. And Job, of course, gives the classic expression to this, where Job confronts Yahweh, confronts the, the Lord, and says, why am I suffering? I do not deserve this suffering. And if you read that book carefully, as I have read it carefully in my adulthood, and I write about this in the way of imagination, God does not answer. God just says, who are you to ask? Did you create the world, Job? You don't have the right to ask. Job does not receive an answer. This is why you suffer. And that's because there isn't an answer to why we suffer. It's not because we're sinful. It's not because we're fallen creatures. It's not because we're unlucky. It's because it's an intrinsic part of being alive. The only alternative is to be dead or to never have been born. Jesus comes along as a figure, and I'm actually at work on what may be an essay, what may end up being a book about returning to my understanding as an adult late in my own life about how my values and my, my, my efforts to conduct my life have been shaped by a childhood 
deeply immersed in thinking about and reading about Jesus. And Jesus, the, Jesus has been used, the figure in the Bible has been used by churches to address that first question, the first impulse, which is fear of death. And, and I'm not saying that the historical Jesus or even that the Jesus in the Bible makes this promise, but certainly the church has made this promise in his name all these 2,000 years, which is that death is, death is temporary. You will survive death or you will return. You will have an afterlife in paradise. So Jesus becomes a solution to the first problem, becomes for the church a solution to the first problem. And the second that is of death, of mortality. And Jesus becomes in through the stories, not a solution, but a partial antidote to the second problem, which is that on our way to death, we're going to suffer. Because Jesus is a healer. He's a, a soother of those who or in pain, he's a person who calls on us. This is what the text says, who calls on us to care for those who are suffering. So the antidote to suffering is other people. It's the care that other people can provide to us. If we're hungry, they can feed us. If we're lonely, they can embrace us. So it's important, I think, for me psychologically that I I recognized, even as a child, I recognized first those two facts about existence. One is it's temporary we're going to die. And the second is that it's going to have pain and suffering in it. And I had pain and suffering in my childhood. Not any great thing to write about. Most people, almost all people have pain and suffering in childhood. But I had enough of it to get intuitively what troubled Job. I couldn't have articulated it. I couldn't have explained it then, of course, the way I'm able to explain it now. But I understood it. I understood it in depth, as even as a child. And so by the time I got to Jesus, I could see what the double promise was. You will live forever. But the second thing is Jesus called on us to relieve one another's suffering. And we we don't have to be a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or any kind of religious person to feel that what redeems us as a species is our capacity to care for one another and to care for the earth that we share. My name is Michael Yates, and I'm the director of Monthly Review Press. In these days when the world is facing multiple economic, social, health, and environmental catastrophes, it is especially important that people come to understand why these crises are happening and what we might do about them. To do this, we need outlets of all sorts, but especially traditional broadcast and print media. The Interchange Radio Show, coming to us from Bloomington, Indiana, is just what we need. Through interviews with activists and scholars in a wide range of fields, listeners can learn not just the what of things, but the why as well. I was on the show discussing a book that I had written titled, Can the Working Class Change the World? The interviewer, Douglas Storm, was well-prepared and thoughtful. He asked good questions, and because of that, I was able to convey to listeners my main arguments with the passion that I hope they deserve. Please consider a contribution to the upkeep of this fine program. Now, as much as ever, it will be money well spent. And that's our show. We're listening to one final cut off of Songs by the Degrees by the Yaron Herman Trio. This is The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Thanks to my neighbor, Scott Russell Sanders, for joining us today in support of local nonprofit media, Community Radio, WFHB. Scott Sanders' new book of essays is The Way of Imagination, and it's published by Counterpoint Press. I'm WFHB volunteer Doug Storm. I produce today's show. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. And, as always, thank you for being an Interchange listener. <laughs>